welcome to No Page Unturned, the podcast where Christina, Steph, and myself, Josh, go in-depth discussing books, mainly focusing on those written by BIPOC and LGBTQ plus authors. You don't have to read along with us, but be warned, there will be spoilers ahead. We still haven't come up with a name for our Cosmere episodes. No, yeah, they're not really booklings, are they? No, it's like Cosmere Watch. (laughs) More white people weigh in on the Cosmere. Yeah. Just what you needed. I apologize to our listeners for going against our premise, but we are talking about a white author. That's true. I feel like we, we get our yearly discussion of Sanderson. Last year, it was the Lost Metal. Yeah. This year, it's uh, Trust of the Emerald Two sea secret projects. And Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. And probably next year, I imagine we'll do a little bit of screaming about uh, 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 Stormlight 5. I don't know if it's actually coming out. Yes. I think it's coming out at the end I, of the I, year. It, I do think it comes out next yeah. year. I need to... I need to... Genuinely, I really need to start probably my reread of... Uh, Rhythm of War right now because <laughs> it's such a big book. I haven't read it since it came out. Same. And it's because it came out in 2020 where everything was weird. Yeah. And it's like dense. It's probably the densest of the four that are out so far. Like there's it's a lot also of kinda, It's kind of heavy. It's like Kaladin's story is pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's dark. Like what? What is it's like? Not intrusive thoughts, but yeah, he has a bad time. Yeah, a lot of mental health stuff that I didn't yeah. expect. Yeah, what I also didn't expect was <laughs> these two books that are like yes, they're both very Sanderson-like and very different from his other work. Yes. Completely, like it's and very different from each other. Oh yeah! Like so... I was really surprised actually at how different. Like, because Tress, I think, like aside from the fact that it's, it's more like a fairy tale kind of thing, it's probably closer to some of his like existing material. Yumi, very different in in a lot of ways. See, I feel the opposite. Really, I feel okay. Yumi. I I feel Yumi is more in line. It's got a magic system. It has more Cosmere related stuff. Mm-hmm. His the dialogue is very Sanderson like, especially between Yumi and Painter. I don't know. That's fair. I that's fair. Well, first of all, what did you think of Tress? And the Emerald Sea. I, and I, uh, yeah, so I, I love... Oh, Tress of, of the Emerald Tress Sea. Tress of the Emerald Sea. Um, I think this was maybe the Secret Projects book that had sort of the most information about it was out. Um, the idea that like this was a book that he Sanderson had written in secret for his wife, and she was like, no, you, should, you need to publish this. The idea that it was, you know, um, meant to sort of echo The Princess Bride, and that it was sort of, yeah, more like a, like a fairy tale kind of a vibe than a lot of his other books. Um, that being said, like, I still, it still went places that I totally did not expect. It was really enjoyable. I uh, did, I wouldn't say I 100% knew the whole time, but I was fairly confident that uh, Charlie was Huck. 
pretty much the whole time. There's a lot of foreshadowing in that book. I was not. So I was I was kind of suspicious about it. And then there's a bit where in Hoyt's narration where he's going on about types of stories and like a story where a princess was looking for a thing that she turns out she had it all along. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. So that was what sealed it for me. I wouldn't. I was never like one hundred, one hundred percent sure until like the actual reveal, but I was pretty certain uh, that that Huck was Charlie. Um. Uh, yeah, like did not did not expect it to basically be a. <laughs> it's not a boat book. I will say. I was I was ragging on Josh for making me uh, read a boat book, but it's not a boat book. It is a book that takes place on a boat. Uh, and it took place on a boat, like, way more than I thought it would. Which you is probably, like, considering C is in the name, I probably could have predicted that it was going to take place on a boat more. Um, right. But yeah, like, the fact that, like, they don't, like... I was, like, kind of expecting, like, oh, like, they'll, you know, go to different islands and we'll see all these different islands in this world and the little different cultures and stuff. And it's like, no, it's pretty much just on the boat the whole time. Yeah, but it's not about the boat, it's which not, is where no. most boat books... The boat is the setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boat, like, boat book, parentheses, derogatory. Yes. Like, <laughs> listen, I am sure there are people that love boat books. Yes. And they those people probably own boats. <laughs> so... Yeah. And, and I, but it's just not for happy. me. I think the one thing I really love about this book and Yumi are is is Hoyd's narration. Yes. But more so than that, good. like Hoyd is such a character that presents himself. I don't think I've ever thought about Hoyd's gender before, so I'm just going to use he him for now. That's how it goes. Yeah. Um. Hoyd always presents himself as, like, you know, um, sort of sarcastic. Well, he was the wit. Yeah. Like, sort of either sarcastic, witty, dry humor where he talks sort of in riddles and sort of insults the people that he's talking to, but on the sly is helping them. And in this book and in Yumi, we get, like, I feel like we get more empathy from Hoyd than we've ever received as him and a character in books via him as a narrator. And I know Sanderson has said these books, because he is eventually going to write Hoyd's story, these books are sort of narrated by Hoyd because he wants to like learn his voice mm-hmm. and he has said that he's not sure if he quite nailed exactly what he's going for but I I love I Hoyd is not a main character in these books but yeah. I love him in these books oh absolutely and he's he's very different in each book too like it is a different narration style but it's still recognizably his voice um and i would love to know who he is telling these stories to because yumi he's narrating to somebody on roshar by the sounds of yeah tress i really had no idea 
I could not kind of figure out like what world or what person he was maybe speaking to. Um, I think Sanderson has said who he's speaking. What at least what planet? Yeah, he's on. But yeah, especially for Tress. Tress like was kind of like that. It was very sweet, very emotional, very like empathetic um, narration style. Yumi was as well, but like there was a little more sass and snark to it. And it, and I think, you know, part of that is born out of the fact that he was stuck being coat rack for the whole time, which was very funny. Yeah. And it's funny. He's sort of stuck in both situations mm-hmm. as something he's not. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. He was like a character in Tress, but not one in Yumi. I think like having him be fully present in both books probably would have been too much. Because he is the kind of person that, like, can steal a story really easily. Yeah, the steals, the screen time. Yeah. And I think that sort of plays into his, you know, his curse in in Tress. And it does make for that. It is very funny. And it does make for a great moment when he he finally uh, regains his memories. So satisfying. But it, it, it's done without making the resolution of the book all about him. Yes. Like, it's yes, still about... So. It's still about Tress and Charlie. Yeah. This, these books also, like, just in terms of Cosmere timing and, like, lore expansion were massive. Massive. Like, even though, they, you know, both of these stories are taking place on kind of what Hoy describes as like, you know, little, not super important worlds in the Cosmere, just being in his head and like, particularly in Tress, like Tress is taking place so far in the future that like Elantrians, or at least somebody has space flight, like, and, and at least somebody from Cell is like, access that space flight in some way, you know, like there's like the world hoppers are fucking everywhere. Um, we learn a lot about, well, not a lot. We, we get really interesting hints as to what's been happening on Scadriel because you have, um, the Chondra there. Oh God. And I'm forgetting it. Ulam. We have Ulam the Chondra and like Hoy talks, like mentions a couple times, like, oh, the Chondra have got, his people have gotten really weird since, uh, Harmony released them. And like, you get these hints of like things that are happening on Scadriel. You get hints of things that are happening on Roshar, like, these at least Tress is taking place reasonably far in the future, and I think even in Yumi, uh, um, Hoyd mentions like, "Oh, it wasn't as bad as the time I got my memories stolen." Or I, that's what I was, I was yeah. trying to remember if that was in Tress I think or it was Yumi. Yumi, because I, I I feel like I just read it and I finished Tress a couple weeks ago, so yeah. And that was like, yeah, that was like after he woke up from being a coat rack. And then he was like, well, it wasn't as bad as when I got my memories stolen or whatever. It's like, okay. So then just, yeah, like there's, I, I didn't, I, I might reread these again one day and just like go through and highlight all the little Cosmere tidbits because there is so much. And it is one of those things where like, if you don't know, if you don't know what they are, they'll probably go right over your head and not impact your enjoyment. But like, for me, there was a few moments where I was just, holy shit. Oh, and like, in, in Yumi, design just straight up explains exactly what investiture is. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, like, 
there's always been like you could like piece it all together of what investiture is, but he's never just been like drop the exposition of what it means. Yeah, and, like in the very like not clinical way, but like an actual like like it reads like a like a Wikipedia article almost like. This does this, and so this, and like this is why you know when I'm on this planet, I do this. And blah, 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 like, yeah, I found it. Investiture is what souls are made out of. Well, everything is investiture because matter, energy, and investiture are the same. But souls, as you'd call them, are parts of our beings that are pure investiture. Like fire is energy. This table is matter. Souls investiture. And it's funny. That that's dropped in this book where it's not that investiture doesn't matter, but like you would think this is what you think this would be in a Stormlight book or a, mm, yeah, a Mistborn yeah. book. And the fact that it's here feels like Sanderson being like, thank you for, uh, you know, giving your time to these more yeah. experimental books. I think so. Yeah, I think he's he's. You know, he's trying these new, yeah, like you said, experimental things. And so he wants to reward people for engaging in that and for, like, it's, yeah, it's like, it's it's genuinely like an Easter egg, right? Like the idea that when you go searching in weird areas, you find a treat. Yeah. Or, or like, you know, it's like checking behind the waterfall in every video game. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, so I, I will say I wasn't totally sure that Yumi was narrated by Hoyd right away. I was pretty sure, but then there's a line, and I highlighted it because it deserves to be read. Um, the minute I knew it was Hoyd, let me find it. Like a man with diarrhea in a sandpaper factory, sometimes all available <laughs> options are less than ideal. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, okay, this one's void. (laughs) It was like this weird moment where I was like, well, first off, he has to know what a factory is. So he has to come from a world that, you know, and understands factories. So probably void. And also absolutely void would make that kind of a a metaphor. (laughs) Oh, God, it was good. These books were very fun. Like they had their, they had their dark moments. Yumi had some particularly like, well, literally and metaphorically dark moments. Um, oh, but these books were so fun. And the thing I really like about Tress is that it's it's, you know, you took the the beans that is the Princess Bride and you put them in you grind them up and put them in the Brandon Sanderson filter <laughs> and you get your Tress enameled sea coffee, but <laughs> it it avoids like there's a part where um you know Charlie as Huck the mouse's name is Huck, right? Yeah. Okay. You know cuz his name is Charlie and the mouse's name Huck, I keep going to say Chuck. So that that was when he was like trying to tell her that he was Charlie, he was trying to get Chuck out, but the curse wouldn't oh, let him, yeah, so that's yeah, yeah, why he yeah, said yeah. Huck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a rat, not a mouse. Just, just so people don't yell at you. But yeah, you're right. They are different. He was a rodent of a usual size. We do have a, a mutual friend who has rats that uh, would yell at me for that. But <laughs> Huck, 
there's a point where he betrays oh. the pirate group. It's so heartbreaking. He says, you know, I did this because I worried about you. I didn't want to encourage you. Um, and I, I was trying to protect you. And then Hoyt has a great, like, parentheses. Uh, fun tip, being told... I kept you in the dark to protect you is not only frustrating, but condescending as well. Oh, it's yeah. Truly, it's a truly economical way to demean someone. If you're looking to fit more denigration into an already busy schedule, give it a try. <laughs> uh, so many, like, fairy tale tropes, especially that involve women that... Um, Sanderson avoids. There's no real damsel. Like, Charlie is the damsel in distress, yeah. not Tress. Oh, totally, and, yeah. And I feel like a lot of Tress is all about empathy. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually really glad you mentioned that because I just found a quote from Tress that I, about empathy that I, that I highlighted um, that I really loved. It might seem that the person who can feel for others is doomed in life. Isn't one person's pain enough? Why must a person like Tress feel for two or more? Yet I found that people who are the happiest are the ones who best learn how to feel. It takes practice, you know, effort. And those, late in life, have been feeling for two, three, or a thousand... Or sorry, and those who, late in life, have been feeling for two, three, or a thousand different people... Well, it turns out they've had a leg up on they've had a leg up on everyone else all along. Empathy is an emotional loss leader. It pays for itself eventually. I love that. That's like I might embroider that. I feel like that is like a great just philosophy to have on life. Yeah, and it also like goes against one of these steps of like you know the hero's journey. Tress doesn't really. There's no big sacrifice that Tress makes. She doesn't sacrifice herself or the crew. I think the the closest thing would be with the dragon, right? Like, and that's not exactly willing. So, I love I love that scene. By Dude, the way. first off, the fact that there's a dragon down there at all, very cool. Uh, and then yeah, like that whole scene where she's like, "I will never give up. I will always be trying to find my way out." But I. I, there is like a weird alternate reality where I think we'll probably we might see the captain again, Crow. Yeah, uh, because like there's like a little lab down there and everything. Like, right. Um, which I'm very interested to see like what the dragon is up to down there. Well, but, it's like you know, Sanderson has read his Hobbit, <laughs> and he's yes. he's read his like. Tricking the dragon scenes before. Yeah. Tress doesn't trick the dragon. No. She's just like plain honest. Like, I'm going to be so annoying. Yes. <laughs> that you're not going to want to deal with me. Yeah. yeah. I'm stubborn to a fault. And you're going to have to. You're going to waste so much time putting up with me that you're better off taking her. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. That whole scene is fantastic and like totally i did not see how that was gonna go at all i was like i genuinely had no idea how she was gonna get out of that so i was like i when she was like i'm gonna give you the captain i was like oh oh yes honestly i think maybe like one of the things i really loved about these books is because they are relatively short especially for sanderson 
like you get all of these like this like concentrated Sanderson goodness, like all of like your your banter and your fuck yeah moments and your nice yeah. emotional things and your like beautiful prose on feelings and you get them all in this like nice little like four hundred page package. How do you pronounce the dragon's name? Uh, Excisus. I don't remember. Excisus. I think Excisus. I, I think I was saying it's Excisus. Cesus? Sheesh? Yeah, I don't know how he does X's. I don't know. Not that, I guess. Neither do I, but I am interested in in him. Right? To know more. Why is he there? Why did he come there? There is, there is like a dragon planet, right? Like, that's where... Yeah, that's Hoyt's planet, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we also got... So when they're, like, describing the dragon, they talk about how it's, like, all covered in, like, like silvery protrusions, and there were, those protrusions are referred to as dragon steel. Dragon steel, yeah. Yes. I was thinking that. <gasps> and I'm like, what does it mean? You still won't know for a while, I think. But, yeah, because, like, Hoyt's full name is Sephandrius. It's very dragony. I think Hoyt is... I can't remember if Brandon has said if Hoyt is a dragon or not. There's someone that he communicates to and you know, those like beginnings of chapters in Stormlight Archives, mm-hmm. the letters that Hoyd yeah. writes. There is a letter and response from someone who is a dragon. Yeah. That I don't think has been featured in a book yet, but everybody knows about the character at this point. Oh man, like Sanderson has not fully explored dragons yet, and it's going to be crazy when he does. And I think there's a lot more of them out there than we think they are. There are. Oh, I agree. He's definitely planted characters that are dragons. I think he's definitely... Yeah. And, like, the fact that the dragons have dragon steel on them... Right? I always think about, because, like, there's... Um... What's the what's the the sword that defeats evil that wants to defeat evil? Oh, there's been, no. Nightblood. There's Nightblood. There there's like all the swords in Stormlight Archives. And then like now there's a new you can't introduce something like Dragon Steel and then not be a sword made of Dragon Steel. Like, but it gives some crazy misborn power or something like Oh yeah! What if you swallow it? Right. Oh, I didn't yeah. think of that. But I always think about like which which is wh- who has the best sword? Who has Ooh. which swords are best? Like I mean, obviously, when you break them down, they all have their probably advantages yeah. and disadvantages. Yeah. But he has introduced a lot of different ways to make blades that has me curious. Yeah. Swords are cool. What, what did you think was going on in Yumi? Because I really had no idea. Like, that was one that I... I was pretty sure that they weren't on separate planets, but I had no idea, like, real. I, I really had no guesses as to what was going on. What did you think? I, because I read it, like, almost immediately after Tress of the Emerald Sea, I almost... I keep saying and the Emerald Sea, but it's not the title. Um... Because I read it right after Tress, 
I immediately bought in to what exactly they said. It was that it was the other planet. Okay, okay. Like, I, yeah. I didn't even think, like, oh, there's a twist. I think I've just, like, learned at this point that, like, I, I learned slash maybe, like, have been broken. Like, I think anytime I'm presented with something in a Sanderson novel, anything, like, some piece about the world is presented as fact, I am, like, suspicious of it. Because, like, that, like, that is often a theme in his books is, like, uh, you know, the world, the world is presented as one way by some kind of authority and actually like in very misborn fashion, right? Like there's always another secret. And so almost any time I'm presented with anything, I am just like, okay, but what's really going on? I definitely thought there was something more to the nightmares than what was being presented. And just the fact that like, um, they were, like, encroaching on the world and sort of, like, cutting off parts of the world. I was like, oh, this is going to be resolved by the end of this book. Yeah, yeah. The fact that, like, because, you know, in basically in the first few chapters, we, you know, we start learning about, like, stable nightmares that, like, can think and, um, you know, sort of evolve beyond being just, like, little wisps of, like, animal intelligence. I was like, okay, there's something going on there. Like, there's... There's some kind of intelligence or, or humanity with these nightmares. Like, what is it? And it was like, I was I was kind of like wondering if it was going to be like the classic, like, oh, the nightmares are actually like, you know, the original inhabitants and they're trying to save their own planet or I don't know. I not I definitely did not get anywhere close to the reality, uh, which was extremely cool. I'm not going to lie. And like, interesting. I just thought, like, the twist was going to be sort of, like, Yumi having to choose between the two worlds, Mm -hmm. not choosing the one readers expected. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me, like, when I I started listening to the audiobook last night, and I'm like, now that, with hindsight, a lot of the, the, you know, the Yokohiju stuff seems very suspicious mm-hmm. i was more like you know dialed into painter and yumi's relationship than what was like going on in the background okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. their relationship was so cute like two people from two different quote unquote worlds trying to you know, odd couple their way through this. I really like the kind of twist he did on it too, where it wasn't that they were just like swapped bodies. Like it wasn't like a a freaky Friday where like painter was her in her world, but she was fully in painter's world and he was a ghost Mm -hmm. Um, because you, you got that, like you got that fish out of water kind of thing, but it wasn't just like kind of your classic, like um, body swap. I did really like Painter's plight with his friends a lot. Yes. It like actually the, felt like, very relatable. The, like, I don't know how to communicate my failure mm-hmm. and just sort of like, um, I think it, there's like a, 
It's like sort of like rejection, uh, depression that he basically went through, and he sort of the way he isolates himself is sort of like it's not that he like I empathize with what he's going through, but it's sort of like it's definitely a lesson that I feel like. I went through in my early 20s where, like, uh, not the, like, lying to your friends about something you accomplished, but the sort of the people aren't mind readers. You have to communicate your feelings to other people. And Painter struggles with that a lot. And I just, like, I don't know. When, like, Yumi is, like, going through the paintings in his draw, that was, like, really... That really hit me hard, like, it, it, how sad I was. Yeah, I, I really empathized with Painter's, like, struggles with creativity and inspiration. And, I, and like, I, I and because, like, I went to art school, like, I have a painting degree, like, I've definitely, like, um, I've definitely had those feelings where you're just, like, I don't, you're staring at a blank wall and you're like, well, I don't know what to do. And I don't feel like doing this. I know I'm supposed to. I know that, like, and this, like, feeling that, like, you know, because you're, like, creative, because you're an artist, like, whether you're a painter or, like, I, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt the same about writing. Like, the idea that, like, oh, you're you're supposed to be brimming with inspiration and feelings and you should just, it should just flow out of you all the time. And, and those times when it's, like, yeah, but, like, I'm kind of depressed and I don't feel like doing anything and I certainly don't like I don't know I'm just staring at this wall and I like I don't I don't feel it and it turns out like doing like he said like bamboo works like you can do the bare minimum and get by and nobody will be very impressed with you but like you also can like get through this like understand you know the idea that like you're supposed to be you're supposed to be so gifted and so you, you, it's like your job to be producing art like art ass art at all times. It's like something doesn't work that way. Right. Uh I don't know, when I started really like getting heavy into writing, uh Neil Gaiman was on a podcast and he was asked um he was asked what like what do you do like what do you the typical like writer questions like what inspires you? What do you do when you don't feel inspired and he goes well if you only write when you're inspired you'll be a great poet but you'll never you'll never make it as a novelist sometimes you just have to no matter whether you're inspired or not sit down and write and sometimes it won't be good and that's what editing is for and but it's like but if you you know novels have a word count and sometimes you even if you don't feel like it you have to you know um you have to make your word count and he's like he said like sometimes you just have to finish whether you're inspired or not and sometimes just being able to finish writing a novel is inspiration in itself to go back and make it better than it is. And so when I started writing, I was like, even days that uh, 
I didn't feel inspired, I would write anyway, and it would be like, it would be bad, but I, you know, would do it anyway. And so, like, I always thought of it that way. And, uh, I try to remember it, but sometimes, you know, I just don't. There's even times where, like, you know, geeklyinks.com slash reading the reviews, I'll finish a book and uh, have to, I struggle to, you know, like, write the review for it. And then, like, you know, eventually force myself to, and then I get authors being like, oh, thank you for writing that review and saying that it's a good review when I think it's horrible. <laughs> um, but that's, like, off track. Like, I, I really like what Hoyd slash Sanderson says a lot about art in this book, where he's, like, you know, he's sort of saying there's no, like, intrinsic value to art, and that's what makes it valuable, mm. is, like, you know, the value that we give it. Yeah. Yeah, I love the bit, I think this was around the same time, where he was talking about how, like, art requires intention. Because, you know, we're talking about, like, the machine stacking stones, and, like, a rainbow is not art. Like, it's beautiful, but it's not art. It's just a trick of the light. Art requires intention and humanity. And I really, really love that because, like, you know, I think that's, like, something that comes up all the time, like, especially, like, uh, yeah, when I was in college and stuff. And it was like, well, this elephant, you know, splattered paint on a canvas and it sold for $5,000. And, like, you know, art's all made up. I was like, no, like, that's, it, it, like, things can be beautiful without being art and art doesn't have to be beautiful. And I think, and it, it, and he didn't mention it, um, probably because it was written kind of before all this, but like, you know, all this stuff with like AI generated art and things like right now, I think that there's, that's absolutely something, there's something to that, right? Like the idea is like, yeah, a machine made this, like it can be beautiful, it can look cool, but it's not art. There's, yeah, I, I loved like, yeah, that whole discussion of like, you know, just like, the themes of like creativity and art and like what is art and what is intention and I loved all of that in this book. Yeah, and it's like the value that we give art and what we say is art is made up, but so is everything else. Yeah, like that's like what money is and the whole yeah. world runs on that. Time we just like <laughs> Yes, the the earth revolves around the sun, but we gave it numbers. Yeah. It easily could have been anything. Oh, yeah. Like, it's all made up. To say, you know, certain art is... Um, I've completely lost my train of thought. Yeah. Yeah, Sanderson often waxes poetic about, like, storytelling and the value of storytelling, and I like that he kind of, like, switch that up a little bit in this book of like that the power that storytelling and creativity has is not or the power that creativity has like to connect people is not just limited to storytelling like it can also be painting or stacking stones or whatever like comes from somebody's soul oh well here it is it's like regardless here's the thing art doesn't need to be good to be valuable i've heard it said that art is the only is the one truly useless creation 
intended for no mechanical purpose, valued only because of the perception of the people who view it. The thing is, everything is useless, <laughs> intrinsically. Nothing has value unless we grant it that value. Any object can be worth whatever we decide it to be worth. And it's funny how, like, that is very Sanderson, yeah. but it's also, like, I can hear that in Hoyd's voice. Yes. It's very, it's like, very a Hoyd, Hoyd thing to say. Yes. Yeah. The perspective of a guy who has hopped around an entire universe for centuries and has seen, like, what people across a thousand different cultures do and don't value. And then he's a little snarky about it. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, there's something about Painter and Yumi's story that is both sad and uplifting at the same time. Like, when Yumi, like, only because it's right below this paragraph I just read, when Yumi talks about how she'll never own anything, and I like, you know, all the clothing that she buys in Painter's World um, will be left behind. I'm glad, even though, like, Sanderson usually has, like, a twist at the end that they got a happy ending. Yeah. And these are two books with happy endings. Yeah. I was I was not sure for a minute, though, there, though, at the end of Yumi, when she was like, I gotta go. Because I was like, well, Tress got a happy ending, so I guess this one's gonna have a sad ending. But then it was good. And they got a doodle shop. Yeah, I did really like... Design is such a great character I in this book as well. I love design so much. I remember she's very good in Rhythm of War, but we don't get a lot of her, and she's still in her like cryptid form most of the time. Her uh -huh. pretending to be a human, like of the Tsunade model, so funny. Like just like big titty blonde lady serving noodles, and like, God, oh, just so funny. Yeah, design was kind of like the. The mentor figure in this book. Yeah. Weirdly yeah. enough. Yeah. Oh, and we learned more about hoardlings in this book, too? Do we? Yeah. But, I don't remember. So there's the bits where, uh, so Masaka is actually like a horde, like a, I forget what they're called. Oh, yeah. Her, yeah, she's like a little, a little horde of crabs. Um, so yeah, we learned like a little bit about them and like, how about like, they're very good, like mappers and stuff like that. And like. Um, I thought that was really interesting because they're they've been like very mysterious so far, especially um, what was that short story that was in between Oathbringer and Rhythm of War, where what's her face? Um, yeah, it was the, the main the character girl, Risen. Uh, like went on a, a trip and ended up like like they went to that destroyed place and there were hordlings involved. Dawn Shard. Yeah, Dawn Shard, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, this is like really the only time since then that we've gotten anything on Hordlings. I don't even know if they're called Hordlings. I may have pulled that name from somewhere else. What are they called? Uh, sleepless, but they're made yeah. of Hordlings. Okay. Hordlings are the name of the, the butt, like the different swarms. Yeah, okay, okay. Oh, and there was another little tidbit in Tress. Right at the very beginning, one of her cups has Eriali writing on it and they talk about how yeah the the Eriali left this planet and went somewhere else 
And we know that they ended up on Roshar. I thought the Eriali were on Skadriel. No, or that the, the people Ire. with the gold hair on Roshar. Uh, oh. Yeah. There's the there's the Irie also. Those are the ones from Sire. And they ended up on Skadriel. Well, that's what the that's what the sorceress says. Yeah. She's yeah. an Irie. Yeah. Yeah, they're the the like Elantrian world hoppers. I want to go back to Skadriel. I know, right? I want to know more. I know. We're not going to get another Mistborn book for so long. Especially because this is not on the subject of of these books, but in a recent interview, someone asked, "Who was the who was the shard that was like the main villain in the Lost Metal?" Oh, um, autonomy. Yeah, someone asked him if like the, there was a lot of similarities between yes, autonomy the, the and um and the people on Elantris. The Prathens gang? Yes. And that there was a lot of similarities between them. And he sort of like hinted at at that. Um, I do wonder how these, like, I'm sorry, I lost. I don't know why I brought up autonomy. Now that I think about it. I don't know, something about, we were talking about New Mistborn or, no. I think Elantris 2 is coming out like next year, maybe? I hope so. Yeah. I'm curious how... And that was his like first published book, so yeah, it's going to be weird how yeah. his writing style has yeah. improved and evolved. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and this is... Man, this is what he does. Like, every time he puts out a book, and I'm like, oh, this is a nice book about a girl on a boat. And then also, he does like such a fucking good job of sending me down the goddamn rabbit hole. Every time. Like, damn you, you beautiful motherfucker. Why was the sorceress on Lumar, which is the name of the planet? Kind of just seemed like she was hanging out. I don't know. On a power trip, maybe? It was kind of weird. She didn't really seem to be doing much beyond just cursing people. What do you think? It's just strange that you've got... um a dragon, which Sanderson has hinted at, is like if you've got a dragon on your planet, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And one of the Irie. Yeah, I think that like I think in that is one where Hoyd was kind of talking about how it is a weird planet and like he needs to learn more about it, as opposed to Yumi and Painter's planet, where he was like, "Get me the fuck off this place! I don't ever want to come back here." Um, because it is, you know, you've got these, like, moons that are spilling weird spores down onto the surface. And sometimes the spores are, like, an ocean that, like, because there's, like, air coming up from the bottom somehow. Like, it is a very... There, there's a lot going on on Tress's planet. Yeah, I saw a YouTube video where he explained where Sanderson was, like, with a scientist explaining how the ocean works. And I still don't understand it, to be honest. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? I don't need to. But I want to know where the air is coming from. Why does it start? Why does it stop? There was a part of me that was, like, wondering if, like, it was all just coming from, like, the dragon, like, flying through the spores underneath or something. Like, yeah. And there's, like, different colored spores, and they 
like he has the spores are essentially the magic system yes of this book yes but at the same time it's not the major storytelling factor of the book the little tools that she used to like sculpt the spore material were made of steel and iron like the push pull metals from scadrill oh my god yeah <gasps> and silver silver was a big thing in that book because silver's popped up a little bit um it like particularly in uh shadows for silence in the forest of hell uh silver played a huge role in tress the idea that like silver neutralizes uh the spores and like we've seen a little bit of that like i remember uh I, I, like in Mistborn Era 1 there's kind of a, a little thing about how like silver is allomantically inert um, but not in the way that like aluminum is where it like remove, it'll like delete um, your right. metals it just like doesn't do anything and uh, it was interesting to see kind of the play between silver and aluminum interests like the idea that like they had to have an aluminum-lined barrel for her to work in so that the spores wouldn't immediately get killed by the silver that was, like, all over the ship. I did not pick up on that, uh, like, but that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I yeah, know. just, like, it's lots like... of little, little tidbits here and there. Speaking of tidbits, going back to Huck's betrayal, when Hoy, you know, as a narrator, and... Huck says, you know, like, I did this for your own good. Hoyd has a comment that is like, ah, those words. I've heard those words. I've said those words. The words that proclaim in bald-faced arrogance, I don't trust you to make your own decisions. And like, and then you think, oh no, this is just, you know, this is part, like, goes with the story, what he said before about um, you know how for your own good is a line that's very condescending, and then he just throws it in there. I said them with sixteen other people, in yes. fact, and I was like, Ooh. "You can't just throw that in there." Right? Like that's got that's I think the biggest clue we've ever gotten to the reasoning behind the shattering. Yeah. 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 Like. Him and 16 other people said to, essentially, God, this is for your own good. Yeah. We don't trust you. Yeah. Yeah, he makes, like, another point in one of the books, like, this was a crazy idea, and I once teamed up with a bunch of people to kill a god. <laughs> and ironically, I was like, it's that, that, like, that meme, like, it's weird that it happened twice, but... <laughs> or like, yeah. If I, if I had a nickel for each time, I would have two nickels, but it's weird that it happened twice. It's like, he was kind of involved in uh, Miss Warrior 1. Not not very directly, but... Ooh, there was also a little tidbit at the beginning of Yumi about how uh, Virtuosity splintered herself near Yumi and Pedro's planet. Yeah, but what does it mean? I don't know! But, like, it does... I feel like it makes sense that, like, a shard called Virtuosity would be like, I cannot go on. I have too much power. I must splinter myself for the betterment of... I don't know. But yeah, like, how does that even happen? Oh! And what about the planet that 
you know the oh, you know yeah, the... with like the weird bird people or something yeah it's like the, one like... of the few times we've run into like non-humanoids that's true yeah. that is one criticism that you could throw at the cosmere is that there's a lot of humans i think we're gonna find out that the reason there is a lot of humans well we know for a fact that humans aren't native to roshar Right. Um, I think you're going to I think as we move more along we're going to find out that like the reason there's a lot of humans in the Cosmere is because like they're basically colonized like colonized like a mixture of like active colonization and then like shards were seeding life like in Scadrial, right? Like sh- the shards were like I'm bored. Right. Make some people. Well, we're I'm a, I was a human at one point. So I'm going to make humans. Um which like could also I wonder if that's happening with the dragon shards. Are the dragon shards making dragon worlds? I don't know, but it's like my theory always was that the splintering of Andalnasium, I'm still not sure how to pronounce that, kind of put a small like obviously it, it the Cosmere is very big, but even as a universe, it's like the splintering of quote unquote God put all these planets in a bubble and that's why so many are humanoids because they're spread out into this bubble and then all the other you know like um the crab animals on roshar are just sort of like what was left i can see that i can see that did you see the the theory that was going around recently that uh the Roshar system is a big fabrial. I, I didn't. I, I don't know much more. Somebody just in a TikTok referenced it, and I was like, oh. but I haven't. I haven't dug into it deeper. But yeah, the idea that the entire Roshar system is a fabrial, like constructed by Adenelzium. Yeah, I mean, for listeners, you know, me and me and Steph are. You know, we've got the Cosmere disease now, we so do. this is what... But these are just, like, even without the Cosmere stuff, um, these two novels are very approachable. Yes. And, like, I, I feel like I don't have to say approachable for Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. Yeah. Like, these two books are just, overall, I think, good stories like they're good like all ages books too like yumi is maybe a little more complicated but like tress you i you could read tress with a kid i think like it'll be a bit long but like i think like you know kids are out there reading like you know well i don't know if you and i are great uh, examples here but like we were reading longer books than that when we were like eight yeah. I think you could do trust with a kid. There's a few, like, racy jokes, but that's about it. I was trying to think if there was anything inappropriate in, in Tress, and I couldn't think of anything. The, the only thing is that they talk about how the sorcerer's tower looks like a penis. Yeah, I guess. But <laughs> It's very, it's not major at all, yeah. Yeah, and even Yumi, like, there's nothing particularly, like, off-color in Yumi. It's just, like, I think a little complicated. There's a lot more going on. It is is a little weird. Okay, this is the one thing I'll say about Yumi. It is a little weird that anytime their spirits touch, it's, like, near (laughs) orgasmic for them. Like, 
he never answers what the hell is going on there. Yeah, yeah. But it's, like, constantly, like... He even, like... When I saw in a book, <laughs> the Sanderson book, the word sensual, I was like, <laughs> who is... Who, who are you? What have you done with Brandon Sanderson? It's like... And it's the fact that, like, every time they touch... Like, I, I, I don't know what's feeling. going on there. Okay, this is... I think this is my theory. So... The idea that, like, investiture or, like, something about their connection. And there's, like, a little, like, kind of one-off thing where Yumi's, like, oh, like, heat has power or, like, heat contains, like, magic kind of Mm -hmm. in her world. So I think that is, like, the connection or the investiture kind of binding them responding in the form of heat. That is my only... I don't really know. I can't... Beyond that, I got nothing, but... Like, that's, I think that's, like, kind of, because, you know, like, when, um, when, like, the Leon nightmare drains her, she gets really cold. So there's something about, like, investiture and heat, um, in those, but it's not ever, like, really explained. That's my guess. How did you feel about the, you know what I really liked about it? Um, like, from the very beginning, it seemed like the attendant for Yumi, is, like, the bad guy. Yeah. When that is, like, completely not true. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, for me, like, I thought the twist was, you know, when when Yumi kind of found out that uh, other Yokihijo were, like, not, you know, feeding themselves and bathing themselves and, like, and that she was actually, like, trapped in this weird bubble of traditionalism i thought like that was the big you know reveal yes me too and then it turns out it was like something completely different which was great because i wasn't expecting that at all um yeah it was it was a little confusing i am glad that like there was genuinely like just the beginning of a chapter where hoyd explained it um and i think that's a fun thing that you can do in this format where like hoyd is telling a story that you can't necessarily do in your sort of more like third or uh like like inner character head point of views. Um, but I like that for, you know, when you have just the, the mechanic of Hoy telling somebody a story, you can be like, okay, so you're probably confused right now. So was I, here's what it is. Um, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I thought that was, it was a super interesting idea for world building, like classic Sanderson, just, you know, taking something interesting and rolling with it. Um, yeah, I would. I mean, I don't know if we would ever get another story set on this planet, but I would like love to see what's happening there after the combination of kind of the two like worlds. I was kind of sad that um, Yumi was the only one um, of the victims of the machine that got to come back. Mm. Like, I, I really wanted to meet the other Yokihiju. Me too! Yes. Oh, that moment where they, like, find one in the shroud? That was so spooky. And that mm-hmm. was really the point where I was like, what the fuck is going on? Because I had just thought that maybe I had figured it out, and then that came up, and I was like, nope, mm-mm. I f- oh, yeah, that was... That threw me for a loop. Yeah, where, like, me too. Like if you if you're the type of person that can go into a book without your brain trying to figure it out, 
Good on you, yeah. but I can't do that. I'm also not that <laughs> so, person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm like, what, what does this mean? Oh, like, what? Yeah. Like, Examining I'm putting the puzzle pieces together. Piece, especially, like, you know, being, like you said, afflicted with the Cosmere disease. Like, trying to figure out, like, what I know of the rules of the Cosmere. But he does a really good job of, like, mixing things up enough on each planet that it's not necessarily something you can predict right away. Like, just because you know the rules of the Cosmere does not mean you're going to be able to figure everything out. Right. Do you think Yumi can, like, become a shard blade if she wanted to? I don't know. Like, yeah. you know, talking about their their touch before, I'm wondering if their, like, connection of spirit is what, you know, allowed Yumi to become substantial. Yeah. I, like, I, I do wonder, like, what... Is, is Yumi just, you know, alive again? Yeah. And think, what... Does he say something like, oh, she can't leave the planet? Like, in the little epilogue? Oh! Does he say that? Or am I making that up? Isn't that like Kelsier? Kelsier can't, couldn't leave the planet. Oh, Kel- yeah, so maybe she's like, she's a cognitive ghost or whatever. Like, yeah, like Kelsier is? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Which is like a very, very, very highly invested one. She can show up. She's a cognitive ghost without, like... Oh man, does that? I wonder if that'll make, like, if if Kelsier finds out about that, I wonder if that'll make, because he has to have all that eye, the yeah, eye stuff. Yeah. I wonder if that'll make you know Yumi a target of the ghost bloods in the future. Ooh. I'm sorry, that was that's a spoiler for Rhythm of War. Like, uh, like. I mean, it's been out for three years. Right. And also, if, if you haven't read it, and you start even now, you'll probably forget by the time you finish it. You know what? The thing that I really appreciate about Tress and the Emerald Sea... Tress of the Emerald Sea, I did it again. I love Brandon Sanderson. But some of the, his writing in the Mistborn books and in... um, God, what's the... F- What's the first? <laughs> the Way of Kings? Yeah. Brandon was not funny. I'm sorry. He <laughs> he was just not funny. Shalon's, Shalon's dialogue in The Way of Kings is so bad. <laughs> She's not funny. It's like she tries to be witty and she is not. I, I think and that's lot- part of her journey though, right? Like she thinks she's funny because she's witty, but she's not. I'll accept that argument, but it's hard to read. Yes. Tress of the Emerald Sea, besides, like, it is the Princess Bride, but it's also like the Princess Bride in that it is funny. Like, I genuinely laughed at points in Tress of the Emerald Sea. And I take back every bad thing I said about (laughs) Brandon Samson being funny, because the book is, like... Yes, it's a fairy tale. Yes, it's like easy, easy to read. And yes, you know, it has a, you know, small conflict with a happy ending. But it's just, it is genuinely funny. And that way is, you know, how it is. And it's not emulating, it's not emulating Princess like it's funny like yeah. the princess bride is funny yeah. but it's not emulating the princess bride it is funny 
Sanderson funny. Like, in his style. And I think I appreciated that more than just it being uh, a really good story. Yeah, I think you know, you you mentioned something there too. Like, I appreciate it was nice to have a low stakes Sanderson story. Like, obviously, like Charlie being you know a kid kidnapped by the sorceress is very high stakes to Tress, and at mm-hmm. times the stakes were high, and that you know the, the crew was in danger, the ship was in danger, but it wasn't like the world was ending. Things could have kept on going yeah. as it was yeah. with the sorceress and the dragon yes. and Captain Crow. Yes. And and it's better for the story having happened the way it did. But, you know, it was, it was you know, it, it was very linear. That was nice, too. Like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, calling it an easy read seems like uh, almost not derogatory. It seems like I'm like no. you know, knocking it down, but like it is nice. It's approachable. Yeah, a fun, approachable read that is yeah funny and sweet and has great characters. Like I mean, his character work has always been pretty fantastic. But you know, your little the, the crew. Oh, the Dugs. Like <laughs> all the Dugs mm. were great. Are they? They're not actually all named Doug. That's just what no, yeah, he calls he, them. He, he talks about. He's like, I'm just gonna refer to them as Doug. Because you don't need to know their names, and yeah. if I call them by their names, you're just going to get confused. And I love that that was like a nice little like, you know, hat tip to a lot of like fantasy storytelling where there's a million named characters that you don't need to know. And he was like, "It, you only need to know four people on this boat. Everybody else is going to be called Doug." Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Which one did you like better? I don't have an answer for this, to be honest. So. Oh, this is... They're very... They're, despite both being, like, you know, I think very similar in a lot of the ways we've talked, they are different enough that, like, I think it's hard to rate them in the same, like, categories, kind of. I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if I could pick a favorite out of the two. I ones. think first impressions, first read-through, uh, Yumi is better. But... Tress of the Emerald Sea will be the one I go back to more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, Tress is like comfort food, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, it is like a, a book that I will reread under a cozy blanket with a mug of hot chocolate. Like, when I just need something easy and fun to read. Oh, speaking of like Sanderson like, telling a fairy tale without, like, avoiding the the tropes of fairy tales. There's a moment that I highlighted and that Hoyd highlights in the story itself. Uh, oh, no, I lost it. I'm so interested to see what Christina thinks of Yumi when she gets back. Readers, for your, uh, for clarification, so... Uh, the reason Christina is not with us in this episode is because she is on a fabulous trip visiting her brother in Asia, and uh, and Josh recommended Yumi to her, so I believe she's reading it. So we'll we'll have to get some thoughts from her when she comes back. But uh, she was gallivanting about the world, and so was not able to record with us this time. Oh, okay. So there's a point where, um, where Yumi is like figuring out what Captain Crow's plan is and then the next chapter oh here it is um 
Tress took you the, the singular step that separated her from people in most stories. The act, it might be said, that defined her as a hero. She did something so incredible. I, 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 this is probably my favorite part of the entire book now that I'm remembering. Uh, re, uh, listeners note, I read this book like three or four months ago. I can exp- I barely I can barely express its majesty. I should consider this more, Tress thought to herself, and not jump to conclusions. <laughs> so many like yes, when you that is fair. When, that is very good. When, when you hear like and this is covered in podcasts a lot. It doesn't matter the medium. Ours, books, like uh Tim's podcast, Naruto Revuto. This happens in wrestling all the times with characters, and it yeah. looking it at you, frustra- Kieran Demon. And like sometimes, if it's not written well, it could be so frustrating. Yes. Where people don't communicate and then jump to conclusions. Oh, it's one of my least favorite tropes in any kind of media. Uh, Hoyt goes on to say, uh, but the person who is willing to reconsider their assumptions, the hero who can sit down and reevaluate their life. Well, that is a gemstone that truly glitters friend. And then he goes on. He's like, you know, maybe we should double check. Double blinking isn't uh double blinking. Perhaps blinking twice isn't an insult in their culture. <laughs> Do you know how many grand romances would have been, would have avoided tragedy if the hero had thought, you know, maybe I should ask her if she likes me first. <laughs> Do you know how many protracted adventures, uh, adventures might have been shortened if the heroine had stopped to wonder, you know, maybe I should look extra carefully to see if the thing I'm searching for has been with me the entire yes. time. Yes, that's what, that's, that's what took yeah. me off. Yes. Yeah, I did not put that together. I, yeah. I did not put that together. But it's such a like, because it's in every, It's like, I don't hate it, but it can be frustrating. I mean, this is a trope of comics where you know, all the, the two, TV, the two movies, everything. Yeah, the two superheroes are like going after the same villain, and they show up in the same area, and they don't really know each other. Like, we take for granted that like superhero movies now act like all the superheroes know each other when it wasn't always that way and then they show up and then one thinks the other is a villain the other thinks the other is a villain and then they fight and then they realize been, there's been a miscommunication and then if they <laughs> just thought about oh, it for a second it's so frustrating especially when it like gets really drawn out like it is in a lot of media like sometimes like the entire crux of a book will be that and it drives me up the wall. Yeah. I I don't mind it happening. Yeah. It's just the resolution to it should be much quicker. Yes. Uh, the worst is when it happens and it resolves and then they do it again. Ugh. Like they didn't like they didn't learn oh, anything. Do you mean the supernatural? That was their main thing. That was the main source of tension in almost every season of Supernatural. It was like, and it's that same, like, oh, well, I'm not telling you something because 
you know, or you know, like like with you know Huck's betrayal, like uh, you know, I I'm doing this for your own good. Like the I don't trust you to uh, not make your own decisions. I could go I could go right. on and on about how irritating the writing in Supernatural uh, was and became. I won't. I'll just say yeah, like it's especially, yeah, especially when it's done over and over and over again, and your characters like supposedly learn their lesson and but don't drives me nuts. Yeah, I feel like if your insert medium here is going on for so long that your characters have to relearn the same lesson without their memories being completely wiped, then your story was supposed to end a while ago. Yeah. I think that's all I got, though. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Great books. I... There's another Cosmere one in the Secret Products Project, The Sunlit Man. Have you read that? No, but I did buy it okay. because yeah. I saw it when I was looking at my notes for... I have not started it. I'm going to catch I, up I, on some review-based books, I think, because that I've been lacking on, and then I might do that in a couple months. Okay. So, Steph, what are you currently reading? Okay, so I... Wait, I've been on a on a, a bit of a reading based journey over the last month because my I I got a I, so I got a new job back in June and it's great and I love it but it's actually like forty hours of work a week and so I've been kind of relearning when to do my reading time and Josh actually you said something that really stuck with me which was like like just you know pick a book up and read like read whenever you can. Um, so I've been sort of readjusting my priorities and doing less TikTok time and more reading time. <laughs> and uh, so I am right now, I'm, uh, I picked up again Paladin's Hope by T. Kingfisher. I'm really hoping to finish that because there's a new one coming out soon. Uh, I, yeah, I just finished. Yeah, so Tress and Yumi I just did. And then I just started, oh God, it's got a really long new book by Malka Oder. Okay, so so I read her first book in this series, The Mimicking of Known Successes, which was like a lovely, cozy, sci-fi, sapphic, Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. Uh, it was great. And so now I'm reading the sequel, which is coming out in March of 2024, which is The Imposition of Unnecessary Obstacles. And I'm like three pages into it, but I'm looking forward. Uh, she does a great job of like setting this very cool, interesting world building um, which is like in space, famously very cold, and she manages to make it nice and cozy. Uh, and then we are still working on the Discord of Gods, um, but our recording schedule got a little topsy turvy just because of life stuff, which happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about you? What are you reading right now? Um, I just finished um, The Traitor of Red Winter mm, by nice. Ed McDonald. It was very good. But uh, it was also very um, filled me with a lot of dread because not only did a lot of like you know fantasy bad things happen, but also Rain is a teenager who makes dumb choices uh, romantically that. As an older person, I'm just like, no, don't do that. No, <laughs> I no, please that this don't. is a learning experience, but no. And yeah. uh, it was great. It had, you know, you ever like hate a character 
just absolutely despise them, but they haven't quite done anything. They've done something bad, but they're not like really, really bad. And then they become more bad, and you're like, yes, I feel validated. <laughs> that happens in this book. Nice, nice. And uh, I just finished also Bookshops and Bone Dust by Travis Baldry, which is the prequel to last year's Legends and Lattes. It's very cute. Uh, it's like it's like Tress. It's a comfort read. It's a feel-good read. Um. You know, it gives, like, some of the backstory to Viv, who is the main orc character from Legends and Lattes. And it features a bookshop, which, like, you know, I'll never get tired of. I think I said it the last time yeah. we recorded, because I was reading it then. I'll never get tired of book writers writing about <laughs> books in their books <laughs> and people that love the yeah, books. Yeah, totally. And, uh, but now I, I finished those and now I re-picked up The Phoenix King by Aparna Verma, which I, uh, started reading in August and then put it down. Um, it's hard to describe what it's about, but essentially, um, there is a kingdom where the phoenix gives the uh the royalty power over fire and they use it to you know protect and serve their kingdom but now there's a legend that the phoenix is going to come again and completely wipe them out and the current phoenix king is trying to prevent that and trying to basically seek out the prophesied person that is going to lead to that and it involves some, you know, Game of Thrones-esque government intrigue stuff, but it's not quite like Game of Thrones. It's very unique and I really like it so far, but I'm still only like 87 pages in. And then I started Grievar's Blood by Alexander Darwin who, this is the second book in the Combat Codes uh, series. I've only just, like, opened it up last night, so I don't know how it is yet, but that is, like, my next reading goals. Nice. Well, and if people want to find you on the internet to talk about your reading goals, where would they find you? You can find me at 4 or 5 Wits on all the sites, Blue Sky, Twitter, Twitch, uh, Tumblr, I guess. Uh, I don't really like threads, so don't look for me there. Like threads, really? As it turns out. What about you? Uh, you can find me at Steph O Kingston on pretty much all those same various platforms, but mostly Blue Sky these days. That's where it's at. If you need a code, hit us up. We got lots of them. What uh, is Christina's Blue Sky? Uh, she's Christina Ladd on Blue Sky, and I believe Christina M. Ladd on Instagram, and I think oh, Christina Ladd Girl on, on Twitter still. Laddie Girl on Twitter. I think she's Christina she's Ladd at Mastodon as well. And as always, this episode is over, as was foretold. Books. Books. Thank you for listening to No Page Unturned part of the Geekly Inc. podcast family. 
You can now find us on Blue Sky at No Page Unturned. Our amazing theme music is by Bad Sparrow, and our cover art is by Mango You Art. 